Every Yom Kippur, we all have the same experience. Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year. It's the, it's the day of tshuva, right? We come through five different prayer services, and the fifth one is the height, it's Ne'ilah. That's definitely a very inspirational event, and we're all feeling the feelings of returning to Hashem. And then what happens right after Ne'ilah? What happens right after Ne'ilah? So there's Kiddush Levana. What else do we do after Ne'ilah? Well, before, before, before we eat, we, we blow the shofar. Right after blowing the shofar, we actually pray another prayer. We pray the prayer of Mariv. Mariv is the prayer that we do throughout the year at night. It's the nightly Jewish prayer that we do. And right after Yom Kippur, it's night. So before we go to eat, before we go to, to build the sukkah, before we do Kiddush Levana, we daven Mariv. How does Mariv start off? Famously, Mariv starts off with a sentence that goes like this. Which basically means, Hashem, please have mercy on us and forgive us for our sins. It's basically a sentence asking Hashem for tshuva. So the great Hasidic master asked like this, after a whole Yom Kippur, a whole day in Shul, and fasting, and doing Teshuvah, and returning to Hashem, and then it all culminates in, we ask Hashem for Teshuvah again. Why? Why do we ask right after the Holy Kippur, please, Hashem, forgive us for our sins. We just spend the whole day doing that. So he said this insight. You know what we ask Teshuvah for? You know what we do Teshuvah for? We have to do Teshuvah on the fact that we doubt that Hashem even forgave us on Yom Kippur. If we even doubt that Hashem forgave us on Yom Kippur, even for that we have to do Teshuvah for. Because all of us have that little doubt. Did Hashem really forgive us? Could it really be? Every single year, you're in, you're out, we'd sin. And sometimes, and many times, the same sin, again, and again, and again. Aside from the GPS, right? I don't know anybody else who you could do mistake after mistake after mistake and forgive you every single time, right? What happens in the GPS when you, uh, when, when you miss the, the turn again and again? In the same tone, in the same voice, you know, recalculating gives you another, and you could do it a thousand times. But a normal person, you sin so many times against them, they, there's a limit to forgiveness. So we might start thinking, of Hashem in these terms as well. There might be a limit to forgiveness. But the truth is, the truth is, there is no limit to forgiveness. You know why? Because as we discussed last week, the relationship between the Jewish people and Hashem are like the relationship between a father and a son, and, or a mother and a son, a mother and a child. A relationship between a parent and a child completely supersedes all rationale. It's impossible. And as much as a, sin, as, as a child will sin against a parent, they will always, always, no matter what, always find within themselves how to forgive them. I use this as an introduction, as an introduction to this segment of what we're going to be learning, which is the third section of Tanya, which actually talks about Teshuvah. A little bit of an introduction about Tanya, okay? We're going to do a little bit of introduction. At Mount Sinai, Hashem gave the Jewish people the Torah. At the time of the giving of the Torah, Hashem gave them the Torah in two general parts. 
two general parts. One is called the body of the Torah. The second is called the soul of the Torah. The soul of the Torah is otherwise known as Kabbalah. That's, the, that's another name for it. But the Kabbalah itself, the Zohar, which is the primary book of Kabbalah itself, calls, the Kabbalah itself calls its part of the Torah the soul of the Torah. That's, the, that's the, even the term it itself uses. The soul of the Torah. Now why are these terms so important? Because there is an indication of the relationship between the soul of the Torah and the body of the Torah by looking at another body and soul that we're very familiar with, which is ourselves. Every single person is a body and a soul. And not only that, the soul of the Torah was given as a direct instruction to the soul of the person. The body of the Torah was given as a direct instruction to the body of the person. The body of the Torah is the Gemara, the Talmud, all the mitzvahs, all the halachas that we have. I'll just give you a, a, a simple example. Okay? We're gonna, very soon we're going to have the holiday of Sukkot. The holiday of Sukkot, one, one of the main mitzvahs is the Sukkah. Do you know how much the Torah speaks about how to build a Sukkah? Do you know that there is measurements that are exact and precise. It can't be more than 20 cubits high. It has to be this wide. It has to be not, lo- not bigger than this, not smaller than this. And uh, there's so many different intricate um, um, laws about how the roof can be made. And there's an entire section of the Talmud, an entire section of the Code of Jewish Law dedicated to how to build a sukkah. All of that has to do with the body of the Torah because it also has to do with the body of the person. The body of the person is building the sukkah. The body of the person does the mitzvahs. And the body of the Torah instructs the body of the person how to act. But then behind doing the mitzvahs is the soul of the person. I could build a sukkah, but then I could do it with feeling. I could do it with love for Hashem. I could do it with a lot of meaning. I could do it with a lot of purpose. That comes from your soul. And the soul of the Torah teaches a person how, how to cultivate his own soul. So the soul of the Torah talks to the soul of the person. The body of the Torah talks to the body of the person. And this has been throughout generations. And not necessarily was it any crossover. There are some people that were halachists by nature. So they really dedicated a lot of their time and energy in developing and learning and teaching the body of the Torah. Then there were the mystics, where they really developed their time and energy teaching the soul of the Torah. But very few, very little crossover. But then comes the time of the Tanya. Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, 250 years ago, the first Rebbe of Chabad. And he was, in history, probably the primal person. I mean, there's been, been many, but if you have to, if you need like an example, he's the example of the person who embodied both aspects of the Torah. And he was a tremendous halachist and a tremendous mystic. And then he wrote the Tanya. And the Tanya isn't necessarily really Kabbalah, because really in the Tanya, he incorporates both sides of Torah in one. The Tanya is the handbook to how to serve Hashem properly in this world. And therefore, when it comes to the third section of tshuva, actually, he dedicates time to both aspects of tshuva. He dedicates time to the tshuva of the halacha, and he dedicates time to the tshuva of the Kabbalah. And while learning them together in the same chapters, while delving into the wisdom, you see how they actually complement each other and they actually work together. But what's 
What's, what's important to understand is that when we're, when we're going to learn a little bit of Tanya on Teshuvah, you get the entire picture. It's like the one-stop shop for understanding what Teshuvah is. Um, you know, on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a broad scale, in a, in a, in a narrow, uh, in a very defined, um, very defined way. Um, an, an example I could give for the, for the tshuva of the halacha and the tshuva of the Kabbalah is like the, is like the mother and the father, right? The mother and the father. Who's the halacha person in the house? Is, I mean, sometimes it's, it's different, but you know, usually the, it's the father, right? <laughs> You're the halacha person. You're the halacha parent. <laughs> usually, usually they compliment each other. Usually, there's the halacha parent and there's the Kabbalah parent. You know, well, he's the Kabbalah parent. What do I mean by halacha parent and the Kabbalah parent? You always have either the mother or the father. One of them is like the rule's the rule. I set to go to sleep, and the other one is always like patting the back and trying, you know, behind the door to, uh, to you know, to 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 that the, you know, to make sure that everyone's loved and and it's just di- different natures, but. Um, but in, 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 in the truth is, in every precept in Torah, there's, there's the halacha and the Kabbalah components to it, but they work, both work together. You need both parents. You need both energies in the house. In fact, um, I'm, I'm, I'm told, which I think is 100% true, is that even if you grow up and you feel yourself as being more like a halacha person, very strict, you know, disciplined, if you're going to marry someone who's more than you, in, in a very strict way, you'll automatically become the opposite in order to compensate in the house. In other words, it's kind of like a feeling of, bo- of both parents that there has to be the balance there. So people like kind of fill in their roles even without, you know, subconsciously. But the point is that the Torah and our relationship with us is the same way. There's the halacha and there's the kabbalah. So let's focus on the halacha of teshuva. Welcome, by the way. The halacha of teshuva. And this may be very, very shocking. Before we get to it, I'm going to just give another um, preface, another preface. There's, um, there are many people who are expert in this, or actually, I should say, not many people who are expert in, in this. The, 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 the ability to be a definer. What's the, what's the ability to be a definer? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain it in, this, in, 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 in historical terms. The big definer in Jewish law is known as Maimonides, the Rambam. What did the Rambam accomplish? We all know the Rambam was a great doctor, but that was actually from the least of his accomplishments. Was he, was, he was a great doctor. He was a great thinker. That wasn't even... Mishnah Torah. The Mishnah Torah was his greatest accomplishment. What was the Mishnah Torah? What does Mishnah Torah even mean? Right? Mishnah Torah means... Mishnah means... It comes from the word... It could, it, it could either mean you know, the, the study of Torah, but, but it also Mishnah means like the second. Right? He did what no one else until his time or was able to do. Since him, there, there have been a few, but, but until him, he was the first one. What he did was took, he took the entire body of Jewish law and Jewish thought, and he made an encyclopedia out of it. So whereas the Talmud is very, very flowy, the Talmud has just, you know, if you learn the Talmud, it, 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 the Talmud is like two best friends who are like out on a boat and, and speaking for 15 hours. Have you ever been talking with a best friend? And drinking, and drinking, right? They go from topic to topic to topic to topic, and then every once in a while they say, hey, how did we get to here, right? And they go back through their conversation. That ever happened to you? All the time. So the Talmud is just a, 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 a river of Jewish wisdom flowing, you know, through, through topics and through and anecdotes and stories and a lot of halacha and a lot of laws and, 
And it's all mushed together. And the commentaries on the Talmud who came right after the Talmud, the first and earliest commentaries, the great commentaries like Rashi, um, like, like, uh, like the Rift, the great commentaries on the Talmud, they stayed completely loyal to the trajectory of the Talmud itself. Which means that they, they give commentary on how the Talmud actually spoke. They, they, didn't, they didn't try to reorder anything. They didn't try to, 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 to make a new, a, new set of, uh, a, a, new, a new set of learning. They just gave commentary on the actual Talmud. So in their, to learn their commentary, you had to learn it together with the Talmud. You would learn the Talmud and then their commentary. Mm-hmm. Came the Ramam and said, look, out of the Talmud, which is a tremendous body of knowledge, tremendous body of knowledge, I want to give to the, to, the, to the regular person at that time, in his mind, the regular person, I want to give him just to clear what you have to do and what you cannot do. The actual halacha, the actual Jewish law on any single topic. Can you, I'm sorry, can you explain that again? Sure. He was, he, he was a halachist, which means halacha, are you familiar with the, with the term halacha? Should I, should I elaborate? You're, you're familiar. So... Because the Talmud has a lot of halacha in it, but it's not exclusively halacha, he wanted to extract from the Talmud just the halacha on any single item in life, any single item in Torah. He organized. He organized. His organization was the key. So what he did was he rewrote the entire, the entire thing. What he did was he realized if you look at any chapter in Ramam, you'll see, and it's the sources could be from about 50 different places in Talmud. Can you imagine that in order to know the actual halachas, going back to the example of the sukkah, okay? There's a couple chapters in the realm of how to build a sukkah, right? Like, like as I described. Every single one of those points, you would have to find in another area in the Talmud. It would be, you would have to know, you kind of have to know the whole Talmud in order to know how to build a sukkah. Or alternatively, you have to go to someone to actually teach you how to build a sukkah. But can I learn it from a book? Says the Ramam, I'm going to introduce that concept. So now, what it, effectively what he did is an encyclopedia, right? What's the first big encyclopedia we have in history? Encyclopedia Britannica? Britannica is what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, at least, at least famously. Right. At least famously. But do you understand the work that goes into that, right? The work that goes into that. Just imagine, you know, just imagine you have to sit down and write an encyclopedia. Okay. You have to... So it's, time. it's the Google of its time. Right. Without, without the, the AI. Well, I was just going to say, right. so they would not be able to find this out even on their own had they been brilliant enough to do so. Right, right. But the, a person writing any, any, any chapter in the, in the encyclopedia has to have two things. Number one, he has to have, he or she has to have encyclopedic knowledge, which means they have to have a whole, of that particular subject, have wholesome knowledge from hundreds of sources have it in their brain. And then they have to have another talent. They have to have the talent of organization. Because if, you, if you're not going to be able to organize that knowledge onto paper, it's just going to remain, you know, aloof. <coughs> but there's actually another separate talent. It's called the talent of defining. In any encyclopedia, you also have the element of a dictionary, right? Or we could just take in our minds a dictionary, right? What does a person writing a definition have to do? Right? It's, a, it's a separate talent. It's not just having the vast knowledge. It, it's not, it's more, it, even more than condensed, it's strip away. Yeah, 
What is it? When you're writing a cyclopedia and you have a, a large body of knowledge and then you have the, the, the added talent of organizing it, that's amazing. But can you have the added talent of stripping away all that knowledge and getting to the core? What is it? What is it? Can I get it just in a few words? Excellent. To positively define something is, is, is a tremendous talent, which, which is with the, with our, our call the Rambam was the great definer, not just encyclopedias, but the great definer. And therefore, in, any, in the beginning of any set of halachas, you always have like, the Rambam would always give like an actual, you know, spend like just, you know, one sentence, just give me that definition. Before I get on to elaborate, I'm going to give you the actual definition. It's interesting to note that the Rabbi Shneir Zalman, who's the author of the Tanya, also had that talent. In fact, in fact, Rabbi Shneir Zalman, as we, um, as we mentioned, was a great halachist. He actually wrote a code of Jewish law in his own right. Uh, many, much of it has been burned um, in, in house fires, um, which, were, which was very common in those days. So we don't have everything, but we do have a large part of it. And until today... Um, No, that, that's, that's, a, that's a later, a later Rebbe. A later Rebbe, yes. This, this is actually the first Lubav Shev was actually very honored. He was an honorary citizen of the Russians. Him and his son. Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, from the town of Liadi. Um, so he wrote a code of Jewish law on, on all of Jewish law. Much of it, as I said, was, was, was burned this, in, in... He was the third? No, the first. He was the, the first. The first, the first, the first uh, Chabad Rebbe, yeah. But um, any student of the Code of Jewish Law from Rabbi Shneir Zalman will notice something very interesting. Much of what he writes there is almost verbatim, a lot of it is almost verbatim from the Ramah, from, from Maimonides. Um, obviously, there's a lot more than what Maimonides writes because he was more of a contemporary, so there's a lot more to write, there's a lot more halachic issues to have developed since Maimonides' times, but wherever he can, wherever he was in exact agreement, he actually used verbatim. He actually used the actual words of Maimonides because who more than Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi appreciated this concise language of the definer. And when it came to the Tanya, which was the, his magnum opus, Rabbi Shneir Zalman, it's the same thing. But when coming to, to, to Teshuvah, before he elaborates, before he explains, before he brings in the mystical dimensions and everything, he gets down to the core definition. What is Teshuvah? And with this preface, that's what I'm going to say, you may be shocked. Because before we actually learn inside, I want you to think just for a minute, what, what, define, try to define tshuva. And again, definition means you have, to, you have to strip away all the elaboration. What is it? What is tshuva? What is it? So if you have a source sheet in front of you, we're actually going to learn a piece of the Tanya. A piece of the Tanya. Source number one. Would you like one? Source number one. Oh, no, no, no. I thought it was going on before. Yeah. Oh, it's fine. Mitzvah The biblical mitzvah of tshuva is only abandonment of the sin. Leave the sin alone. Stop cold turkey. Just stop. Just stop sinning. Just stop the sin. That is the biblical definition of teshuva. That might sound very shocking because we tend to think of teshuva crying, repentance, 
begging forgiveness, soul searching, deep thought. But the core definition of teshuva <laughs> is actually azivas hachet bovad, which means just leaving it and stopping it. Just, just stopping it. But, yes, but he qualifies, he qualifies. And we'll continue after the parentheses. Tahainu, I'll explain what that means. Meaning, sheyigmar beliboy, he should conclude in his heart, commit in his heart, believe shalom with a full heart. He has to really mean this. Leval yishuv oid lechisla limroid v'malchusa yisbarech, he will not return to the foolishness of rebelling against his majesty, the king, meaning God. And he will not sin, transgress against the word of the king. Whether it is in the positive commandments or the negative commandments. In other words, he has the, the, the mitzvah of teshuva is having a committed heart to stop not just the sin you're doing, but to stop sinning. So on one hand, it's very, very... It's more than that. It's, it's telling you also that you have to obey the other 612 right. commandments. It's not just letting go of the one thing Correct. wrong, but... Correct. So on one, hand, it's a, on, one hand, on one hand, it looks like it's narrow. On the other hand, it looks like it's very broad. And they're both working together as a definition of teshuva. So it's, it's the cold turkey uh, stopping element, but it's also... A, a, it's also a, a commitment to stop, to stop sitting against Hashem, period. Not just on this particular sin. So on one hand, it's, you may seem, hey, that's very easy. On the other hand, hey, that's actually very hard. But both of them work together, hand in hand, as being as a definition of teshuva. But this is a, this is a, a, a whole new way of thinking of teshuva, which is not the norm. And Rabbi Shneer Zaman and Tanya understands that understands not normal. He understands that the assumption of the person is that teshuva again is the soul searching and the crying and the and the and 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 and, and returning and the and the 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 what the the you know a lot of heart should be involved you know this sounds like this sounds like very cold as in cold turkey very cold and the truth is that it is it is but that's the encyclopedia in other words we're we're going to learn a lot of different forms and different um, and different elements of the Teshuvah process, but before we get into all these forms and elements, understand what it's, what's sitting at its core. And it's very important to understand the definition before we get into the, labor, into the elaboration. Um, so, I want, to, I want to now go on to, on to the, um, the next subject. Um, but before, I want to just explain why. Why is that true? Why is just leave... Is, is, why is that so? Why does Hashem make teshuva not anything that you may think just letting go all of a sudden? Teshuva. I'm done. Why is that? Does that make any sense? You sin against the person and say, uh, you know, I'm just going to stop annoying you. Excuse me, apologize. You know, do, do something like, I've been annoying you the whole year. You know, I'm going to teshuva. I'm just going to stop. Do you have any respect? Right? That, it, it sounds a little, but, but you know what? Going back to this, the core explanation and the entire teshuva process that we said last week, we're talking about a parent-child relationship. And when you're talking about a parent-child relationship, the rules of the game are different. The rules of the game between a parent and a child is if a child 
is doing something that pains the parent, that annoys the parent, that, 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 you know, if a child is doing something that it's that, not going on the path that the parent had set out, and then one day, without big drama, without big apologies, without big hugs and kisses, decide, you know what, I'm stopping. For the parent, that's enough. For a parent, that's enough. They don't need anything else. Why? Why is that different? Because a, a child and a parent have a different connection, spiritually and biologically, than any other person. Right? The connection between a child and a parent is in their essence. They're, they're, they're literally from one flesh. The connection between uh, any two people, even the best of friends, started from the externals. Right? How do you make a friend? Hi, yeah. hey, what's your name? What's your name? Right? So it starts with the name. Get to know each other a little bit. Common interests. Spend time. Common experiences. And these things draw the people together. But do you realize how it started? It started very exter- externally and you know, slowly, gradually became closer and closer and closer until you feel like sisters, let's say. But... but you have to realize the origins started from the external. By a parent and a child, it's different. How many times do we hear that a person is, is, is given for adoption at a very young age and then just has this urge to find their biological parent at a later stage in life? Where's that coming from? There's no connection, there's no common interest. Why do you have this urge? You have such a good life under the adoptive parents. Where's this urge? But the, because we're talking about a different set of rules. We're talking about a parent and a child where, in essence, they're, 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 they started off from from, from, a, from, a, from an essential place, from an intrinsic place, they started off as one and connected, and even though they may drift apart, they're always gonna come back together. So because the relationship between a, a, a person and Hashem is of the same nature, or even deeper, the truth is even deeper, but for us to understand this relationship, we use a parent and a child as, a, as, a, as the best analogy we have, now it's understood. What Hashem wants in essence is just leave, follow my path. Good question. Yeah. So if that is true, then what's the point of like slichot and aseratim and tshuva and like all the davening we do on like Yom Kippur, like slachlanu and everything? This is a great question for the second part of the class. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm going to get to that. <laughs> yeah. But if anyone has another question on this part before we continue, it's actually a good time. Um, okay. So I want to point out um, that there's... We, every single day in, in the morning, we say what's called karbonas, which is before the morning prayer, before shakras, we say what's called karbonas, which is called sacrifices. What's the sacrifices? It's a, some prayers we say before we actually start the minion. Um, in the times of the temple, there were different sacrifices that were given. Some were some animal, there's some um, fragrance, Sometimes it was, it was flour, oil, different types of actual sacrifices that were given that were meant to connect a person to Hashem for different reasons, for different reasons. And because we don't have the Jewish temple now already, close to 2,000, year, 2000 years, we don't have a temple. So the rabbis instituted that in the morning, we should say, we should actually say, we should actually learn the passages of Torah and in the Mishnah that refer to these karbonas these sacrifices, and that's going to be as if we're actually giving those sacrifices. That's the best substitute we can have without a temple. So you'll notice, next time you look in the city, you'll notice that there's different types of sacrifices. There's different types. There's one, probably the most famous one, people are not uh, um, familiar with sacrifices, is the Pesach. What is Pesach? Pesach we know is the holiday of Pesach. The reason it's called the holiday of Pesach is because we gave a once a year sacrifice called the Karban Pesach. 
the Pesach sacrifice, right? As an example. You'll notice that there's, there, there's, there's, there's two types of sacrifices that I mentioned over there, which actually pl play a role with each other. And this is going to be the segue into answering your question. One of sacrifices is called the chatas, which means the sin offering. The other one is called the ola. Ola means the arising <laughs> offering. Ola means to, 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 to rise up. Why is this called the sin offering? Why is this one called rising offering? So the sin offering is actually called sin offering because it's given for certain transgressions that a person does. You, in order to uh, atone, you gave that, that sacrifice. And interestingly enough, it's only for transgressions that you did unwittingly, not, uh, not, not, not that you did on purpose. Maybe they send the goat off the mountain. That's in your kipper, actually. Right. Yes, but, the, but, the, but those are special sacrifices that are, are community, communal collective. sacrifice, collective. Um, the chatas, there are community chatas, if the whole community went astray in certain times, but uh, usually the chatas is an individual sacrifice. A person, um, he transgressed, and uh, he could always bring a sacrifice. But then there's the ola. The ola is actually a general category. There are many different types of sacrifices that go under the category of ola. And it's called ola because unlike other sacrifices, the entire sacrifice is, is given is put onto the altar and no one takes any part in it. While the other sacrifices, there are certain parts that are, that are, um, that are given to either the kohanim they could eat, to the, to the, to the, the, for example, the Pesach. The Pesach, the example that we brought before, is actually eaten by the Seder, right? So that means parts of the sacrifice are put on the altar and the rest is actually eaten by the Seder. So the Ola is that one sacrifice where the entire sacrifice is given up. Now, if a person sins, the halacha is that you give a chadas and you could also give an ola for the same sin. So says Rabbi Shneir Zalman, why would you need two sacrifices for one sin? Why do you need the sin offering? Is the sin offering not enough? Why do you need the ola? So he gives a parable, which we'll read inside, and this will explain your question. Okay? So if you look in... Um, in text two, <clears throat> he says like this. Like a person who disgusted the king. And he sent an agent, an officer of the king, to ask forgiveness. And the king forgives him. Yet still... Sheleach Darin, he sends a present, Darin Umincha Lefanov, he sends a present to the king. So that the king should desire to see him again. We all know that there's forgiveness and then there's forgive and forget, right? Forgive and forget. We say forgive and forget. Forgive and forget are two different things, right? You forgive someone, but you haven't forgotten. I don't have, I don't wish them ill anymore. I'm over it, I'm fine. But the person in, is not in the same standing in front of your eyes as before. There's a trust issue there. There's a trust issue there, right? It's just not the same. But then there's forget. Where you really forget, where the relationship has been amended so much that it's like as if before, and we all know that when uh, a relationship's mended, it's even stronger than before. In fact, we're gonna learn later in the Tanya, maybe I'll bring it up right now, another piece of wisdom from this section of Tanya is just imagine the relationship, and this is between Jewish people and Hashem, but it could also be between two people, the relationship as a rope. Imagine. 
And when a relationship sours, the rope is disconnected. Okay? And then when the relationship is renewed, the rope, the disconnect is tied together. Now, before the rope was tied, in that area was a single rope. Now that, there's a, now that when you tie it, there's a much rope in that area, right? When you make a knot, there's much rope in that area of the cut. That is the way you can imagine a relationship that has been amended. That in that area, and in fact, in the area that there's been a cutoff, all of a sudden there could be even stronger. But the point is that there's forgive and forget, that's two different stages, and that requires from the people two different uh, approaches. So he gives a, 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 a analogy. Imagine a person who did something disrespectful to the king. And the king is disgusted. And the king is angry. And the person comes before the king and says, please forgive me. I, I didn't mean it. Please forgive me. And the king decides he's going to forgive him. But the person cannot come before the king and the king will look at him the same. So what the person does, he sends a gift. Randomly. A gift. And gifts have the power to bring people together to show, you know, love. It's, it's a great, right, one of the five love languages is giving gifts. Because a gift has that power to bring people together again. So this is the analogy between these two sacrifices. You could go to God and you could say, Teshuvah, forgive me. But then there's, you want to mend the relationship. You want the relationship to be an, on the footing that it was beforehand. And that's the answer to your question. All the rest of the elements of tshuva, which are very important. They're not the definition. They're not the essence. But they're very important because they serve a purpose. They serve the, 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 the crying that we imagine and the soul searching that we imagine and, and, and the thoughts and, and the begging of Hashem for forgiveness and, and putting your whole heart into it. All of that is very important because that serves a purpose of renewing the relationship even beyond the forgiveness. Now, actually, um, the, 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 the assumption that Rabbi Shneur Zalman is actually, um, the, the, the assumption that he's speaking to when he, when he gives us this big bombshell, right? Just leaving the, the sin, that's, that's, that's teshuva. And people, everyone was shocked, right? The assumption that he was dealing with was um, back in, in those days was a very common practice to um, engage in fasting. Fasting was seen as a big, uh, a big element of, of teshuva. And we can understand why. Because when you fast, you become a little more refined. You, become a little, you're, you're, you have to abstain. When you have to abstain from materialism, it makes you a little bit more refined. You get, it gets you in touch with your neshama more. And that's the reason why we fast on Yom Kippur. We all know that the fasting does play a role over here. When, you, when you're not engaging in materialism until the, in, up until not even eating, which is, which is a basic function, I mean, we can't do that for too long, but just for a day from abstaining, it gets you more in touch with your soul that way. And people would engage in fasting on a regular basis. And it was actually, amongst the mystics, an encouraged practice to make yourself more refined, to get yourself closer to Hashem. But this is what Rabbi Shneur Zalman was saying, should not be conflated with the actual essence of, of teshuva. That should be considered like the extra present that you give after the forgiveness to mend the relationship. And then he says something really important. Then we're going to go to the third text. But what about people that don't live in a culture of fasting? For example, us. We, don't, we only fast 
Yom Kippur. We don't fast too often. It's, we don't see any big rabbis, any spiritual people fasting too often. It's just, it just for, for, for whatever reasons, and there's actually, there's positive reasons as well. But for whatever reasons, we are weaker physically, actually, nowadays. People were, were much more physically stronger. We're also weaker spiritually. We, 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 are, we are just a, at a different time where fasting is not the prevalent custom. And actually, the Rebbe did not encourage fasting at all. And the reason is, we're going to find out right now. Says the Alter Rebbe, which is the, 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 the name for Rabbi Shneir Zalman, the Alter Rebbe, the first Rebbe of Chabad. He says like this. If you're a person who fasting consistently, fasting, abundant of fasting, can actually harm you. It can actually, if you, if you fast too often and too much, then uh, you can... Contract illness or become unwell. Like in our generations. A person is actually forbidden from fasting, even from the most severe sins, the sins that actually warrant the death penalty. Can you imagine? Those few sins that actually warrant in Jewish law the death penalty, whether they're actually meted out or not, but, but they're that severe. They're that severe. Even those sins, we should not be fasting if it's going to make you weak. Why? Anyone who's listening to the class on that can tell you why. Because if it's not the essence of tshuva, if it's a distraction, then don't do it. Says, and this is what the Rebbe was very, very um, strong on, this, this point. He says, if you're going to fast, and that's going to make you weak, and you're going to be in bed all day, and you're not going to be able to do mitzvahs, you're not going to be able to learn Torah, then you're being counterproductive. The essence of teshuva is just leaving the sin. If you want to add on to it, only do the additions if it's not going to distract from doing Torah, from doing mitzvahs, taking care of your family, from being a healthy and functioning person. So it says, Rabbi Shneir Zalman, so if we don't have the fasting and we don't have the self-affliction that can make you closer to Hashem, then what should we do? What could be the person? What can a person do? He says, my what's his solution? You can find it in the verse. Your sin with charity redeemed. And that's why charity becomes a central theme in this teshuva process. Says the Alter Rebbe like this. The same, um, the same accomplishment of fasting can be accomplished with tzedakah as well. Because just imagine what happens when you take the money that could have bought you all that food, that could have bought you um, all the materialism. And not only that, how much self-sacrifice did you need to go through to get that money? Most people are not winning the lottery, so they're actually sweating to get that money. They're working hard. They're spending their time. We actually spend the bulk of our life working to make money. Can you imagine? So like we're, our, 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 as a being, when you ask someone like, uh, um, you know, so, so what do you do? Most people answer their career. Because they, they identify with that all because it, we, we spend so much time and energy in it. Even though it might not be so true. Right? You, know, you know, what do you do? You actually do a lot more than your career, but it becomes such a big function in your life. Can you imagine? Now, you take that money that you spent your whole, your whole life on and you, and, and you give it to charity. You, you, that, that functions like fasting where, you have to, where you're advocating from, the, from, from materialism. It's... It's, it's a form of depriving on one hand, and it's a form of taking, right, and, and giving charity. In fact, we're not, I didn't bring it in the sources here because um, I wanted to just bring the three main sources that will get the idea across, but 
The Alter Rebbe in the Tanya actually goes on to enumerate different types of sins and the amount of money that the Kabbalah stipulates he can give for these types of sins. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Just want to point out a, a, a very fascinating point that not, not necessarily did the death penalty mitzvahs actually result in death penalty because the penal system... What? The 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 the, 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 the <laughs> Because of the three witnesses, like it's so hard. It's really hard, yeah. So the actual Yeah. The Talmud actually has a statement which uh, yeah, the Talmud actually has a statement that if uh, that if that if if a court um actually falls through with an actual death penalty, with actual actual death punishment, actual capital punishment once in seven years, then it's considered like way too much. Like and then there's another opinion of the Talmud once in seventy years. So now you would ask if the Torah has the death penalty for so many different uh, uh, mitzvahs, then why would it make such a statement? The answer is because the penal system in halacha and the actual various system, does, they don't work necessarily hand in hand. In other words, the severity of the, of the, of the avera could be categorized as this is a capital punishment avera. But you're not necessarily going to get a capital punishment because there's two, there's just so many stipulations that have to happen before the, before the, the punishment has to happen. Yeah, as you mentioned, it has to be two witnesses. It has to be done Actually, intentionally, and these two witnesses have to have to testify that this person was of of of, uh, of a balanced state of mind at the time. And the only way to prove that is if they tell you, by the way, you're doing this avera and you're going to get the punishment. And he has to acknowledge that he heard them. Now, if a second later, I'm just giving you a, just so you should understand. If a second later, if they say, by the way, you're doing this avera, you're going to get punished with the death penalty, and he says, I know, but three seconds later. Um, they, they don't, they, you know, he actually does the Avera, it doesn't count. Because it could be that he lost his mind in those three seconds, we don't know. You understand? So they have to keep on, you know, uh, saying the, uh, say the warning again and again, and then there's, there's, there's a whole set of laws if these two witnesses, if they're kosher witnesses at all, if they're relatives, they can't be kosher. So there's so many halachas uh, about giving the actual, the actual death penalty that it's very, very seldom. But it doesn't take the severity away from the Aver. When someone does do the Aver, even though he can't get the punishment, it's still categorized as an Avera in that category, which is very, very severe. Very, very severe. And then just imagine, and just, yeah, so just imagine that uh, for, for those Averas, you for sure want to do Tshuva. And you could just imagine how big the present to the king has to be, you know, not just stop it doing the, you could just imagine. And yet, still, if those fasting is going to make you weak, you should go for tzedakah instead of the fasting. And um, which just, the, the power of tzedakah is phenomenal. That's uh, the, the transformative piece of tzedakah, right? Like then. The, the, the second, the, the, yes, yes, correct. Um, now, as we get closer to the Messianic times, as we get closer to the Mashiach times, tzedakah becomes a lot, a lot more prominent. Um, and in fact, um, it's something you can see nowadays. Um, tzedakah is a very, very prevalent thing. It's a very prevalent thing. I mean, like crowdsourcing, for example. I mean, this is, this is, this is like a new phenomenon, but you know how many millions of dollars are, are fundraised with very little effort. And philanthropy has become a very, very um, accepted you know, mindset amongst, you know, uh, you know, you have these billionaires that, you know, they, 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 their claim to fame is their charity, not even their business uh, um, expertise. Um, but... Um, but um, ch- yeah, so, so, so charity not only functions as a, a great element of tshuva, but in general, charity is, the Jerusalem Talmud says that if you just say the word mitzvah, 
If someone just says the word mitzvah, really, and he doesn't explain, it doesn't say which mitzvah. He just says, I'm doing a mitzvah. Which mitzvah? You assume that he's doing charity. Because charity is like the mitzvah. The mitzvah. That's how, how great charity is. Um, I want to now uh, transfer to the, the life part of the, our class, right? There's the Tanya and there's Tanya life. So I put on these cards. I'm going to give them out. And we'll um, just give a moment for reflection before we actually, um, before I actually you know, talk. I just want you to see. I, I, there's pencils, if you want. Many of you have pens. Take it. Yes, thank you very much to the. <laughs> yeah. So I call this a life card. Um, the wisdom of Tanya is deep. And um, the life lessons you can take from it can be on all levels. The three suggestive levels I put down here is the relationship that we have with Hashem, which is obviously what we're talking about. A relationship you have with yourself, which is very important. And the relationship you have with others. And we could have a moment of reflection that people write down from the lesson that we learned today, what in these three categories where can we learn a life lesson in these three areas? I'll just, I'll just wait a few seconds so you can think about it, and then I'll tell you what I wrote down as an example, and then I'd like to go around the table if anyone has any other ideas. So if you want to just, we'll be quiet for a second, if you want to write down any ideas that come to mind. Okay, I'll begin. Um, in, in relationship with Hashem, this was I put down, um, which I feel is very strong, and I think it's actually the, less, the, the core lesson that we learned today. If you engage with the sin head on, you give too much attention to it. You give too much um, credence to the sin. You give too much, you know, you, you, give, it, you give it too much Attention. So a, a life lesson that we can learn out is that we each have like that core sin in our mind. Like, you know, the thing that we really want to, to repair. You know, we're waiting for Yom Kippur. You know, on Yom Kippur, you can imagine yourself doing Teshuvah. That sin comes to mind because that's the thing that really bothers you. The best way we can deal with it is the cold turkey way. Just let it be. Just walk away. Because the more you try to fight it, the more, the more, uh, the more credit you really give. The more credit you really give. We, we all heard like, you know, we fight darkness with light. Why do we fight darkness with light? You know, this is a very famous and uh, oft-used uh, um, expression. Maybe fight, fight the darkness. <laughs> no. When you fight the darkness, you, you acknowledge it too much. Just bring in the light. For the, for the same reason, in relationship with Hashem... You know, take on that, that, that core sin in your mind and just leave go. And in relations with yourself, um, I would say, for the same token, don't define yourself by your bad habits. Right? There's some bad habits that, that we do, right? We, we, 
We want to change. We want to change. And too much of your mental energy is used in, I want to change, I want to change, I want to change. You have to realize that if the more mental energy you use in trying to change, it means the more mental energy you're using. And the more it takes hold in your mind, and the more it's bound to stay. And try this, you know, let's say it could be, I want to wake up earlier. And it's really, really tough because I'm used to waking up late. <coughs> just, just wake up earlier. Like, just actually do it for three days and see the difference. Don't try too much to speak yourself into waking yourself early. Just force yourself to do it. The cold turkey approach, right? Just force yourself to do it a few times and you'll see you already have given less and less attention to the big monster, which is wake up late. I don't want to wake up late. I don't want to wake up late. Forget about wake up late. Wake up on like wake up early. Like give that give the, the positive focus and don't define yourself with that bad habit. And relationship with the other, I thought of the next piece of our class. It happens a lot, and many times by mistake that we hurt people, right? We can uh, whether we, it was a moment of anger, and we said something, or we took someone's. You took your coworker, you took their stapler, I don't know, and they're very angry at you, and you didn't realize, you thought it was yours. So you apologize, right? It's a glass piece of sushi. It's a glass piece of sushi. So you apologize. If the person is very hurt, if the person is very hurt, realize that apology is very good. That's, a, that's obviously a very commendable thing. Over the next week, try to find an excuse to do them a favor. Because you'll see that apology, okay, it, 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 it eased the pain and, and whatever it may be, you know, whether it's something small or something big, and they have nothing against you anymore. But that's not the goal. The goal is to mend the relationship. So I'll try to find an opportunity, and it shouldn't be too obvious because then they feel like, oh, yeah. But try to find an opportunity to do them a favor. You know, like, like if, if, you know, Purim, send them, you know, do something extra beyond just asking forgiveness. Because if it's just tit for tat, then it's going to be forgive. But if you want to get to forget, then you have to have that positive, that positive, the extra. Go out, go out extra and just see what's going to happen. The relationship will be mended and it will be, it will be, it will be forget. They'll forget and, it will, and, and, and the relationship will be even stronger than before.